0: Our text today is going to be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 18. So Hebrews, chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might face death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you being tempted. So in verses 6 through 8 here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the 8th Psalm. And the psalmist and psalmist is talking about the unique position of human beings in the universe. On the one hand, we have very good grounds for being humble when you consider the majesty of the midnight heavens, when you consider the splendor of the angels, you can very easily get swallowed up in a feeling of insignificance by comparison, right? What are we compared to these glorious things God has created? But at the same time, human beings have been given a very privileged position on the earth. Let me read verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8, describing the position I'm speaking of. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So the language harkens back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27-28. He tells us that male and female were made in the image of God, and he gave him dominion over the rest of creation. But here in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer is taking these words from Psalm 8, and instead of applying them generally to mankind, he is applying them specifically to Jesus. So that when we come to the theme of subjection, in verse 8, you'll notice that we're no longer talking about mankind's dominion over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. The writer doesn't mention any animals, right, in Hebrews chapter 2. So what we have is a much broader theme of subjection stretching out over all creation, including the human race. And he writes, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, which is consistent with what the apostle paul writes in 1 corinthians chapter 15 verses 22 to 28 let me read those verses for us for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to christ then comes the end when he delivers a kingdom "...will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." So in other words, even though God is in control over the course of human affairs, when we look at the world as it is, we see a good deal of chaos, of disorder, of sin, suffering, and of course death. And these evils are all going to be forever vanquished when the kingdom of God is fully realized, when the Son of Man returns... And then not only will God's sovereign hand be guiding creation as it now is, but all of creation will also live in perfect harmony with the mercy, love, truth, and goodness of God. And God will be all in all. And the restoration of all things and the renewal of all things is made possible by the incarnation. Verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The words a little while are really significant because the author, knowing that he's applying these words to Jesus, doesn't want us to confuse the word made with the word created. The Son of God was not created at any time, lower than the angels because he wasn't created at all. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But for a little while, the Word was made a little lower than the angels by taking on a human nature that, like our nature, is subject to fatigue, exhaustion, hunger, and then, of course, ultimately, death. But it's by tasting death for everyone that Jesus is able to manifest the love of God for his creation and bring about their salvation. Then in verse 10 we read, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There is a lot of theology packed in to verse 10. And the theme of incarnation, which I've been talking about, which is such a staple of Christian theology, one of the truly unique doctrines of the Christian faith, the God-man, does, at least for me, remain something of a riddle. I don't know if any of you read what the title of the sermon was supposed to be. It was given to me. I didn't choose it for myself. But I think the title was something like, A Gift Worth Understanding. And now I'm standing here saying, well, I don't really get it. Um <laughs> But, but neither did, I mean, when you look at the Chalcedonian the Creed, they didn't fully get it. I mean, you look at the language of the Creed, and they say, well, you know, we, we've got to keep them separate, but at the same time, we can't divide them. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I like what G.K. Chesterton says um, about the Incarnation when he writes, Bethlehem is a place where extremes meet. These extremes, it seem like they are totally incompatible, like omnipotence and weakness. Like divinity And And the only way we're going to be able to give full weight to the scriptures is to make room for the true humanity of Jesus. So assuming we accept the true divinity of Jesus, which I hope we all do, the author of Hebrews here is now telling us about the true humanity of Jesus. And he's telling us that he was perfected through suffering, that as a human being, Jesus did... Undergo development. Before you accuse me of blasphemy, if you look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 verses 52, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And you might think, well that would be impossible for Jesus to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God. You think all these things would just come downloaded. But the scripture says, no, that as a human being, Jesus did develop, just like we all of us do. But we need to tread very carefully, right? Because when we read the word perfected, we don't want to think he was flawed and needed correction. So when we think about the first man, Adam, Jesus wasn't like the first man. The first man was created good, right? He wasn't created flawed. He was created according to God's design in a state of innocence. But he lost that same innocence through disobedience. But when we come to Jesus, we have a human nature that from beginning to end completely and fully submits to the will of God and never deviates from it in the slightest. And so human nature is perfected in the Messiah. And like I said, these are of course deep theological waters we're traveling into here. And I don't claim to be able to see to the bottom of them in terms of how it all works. But I think we can accept what's written here. The founder of our salvation was perfected through suffering. And the author of Hebrews tells us that this was appropriate. It was fitting. And he gives us his explanation of why in verses 14-14. And 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, to be fair, there were ancient peoples who showed great courage and poise in the face of death. Take, for example, the Greek philosopher Socrates, who was executed about 400 years before Jesus was born. He was condemned on the sham charges of impiety and corrupting the youth, and he was brought before his fellow Athenians and condemned to death by them. His disciple Plato wrote a work of his defense at his trial called The Apology, right? Which in this context doesn't mean apologize, it means give a defense, And at the end of the work, this is what Socrates says to his accusers who have condemned him to death. He says, "Now the hour to part has come. I go to die; you go to live. Which of us goes to the better lot is known to no one except the gods." And so, like I said, this is a man who I would credit for showing great bravery in the face of death. But I would also say I think men like Socrates were the exception and not the rule. Just as many people today fear death, I'm sure many ancient people also feared death and were in slavery to that fear. But with the resurrection, we have an outbreak of a new hope. And when that hope seizes the early church, we see Christians who are not only not afraid of death... But they are almost in love with death. They almost embrace death as a husband embraces a wife. Take, for example, St. Ignatius of Antioch. He also was condemned to death in the second century. He was a martyr. They took him to the arena, and he was killed by wild beasts in the arena. And he's on his way to die, and he's writing some letters to different Christians. And this is a passage from one of those letters he wrote. I am writing to all the churches and state emphatically to all that I die willingly for God, provided you do not interfere. I beg you, do not show me unreasonable kindness. Suffer me to be food of wild beasts, which are the means of my making my way to God. God's wheat I am, and by the teeth of wild beasts I am to be ground that I may prove Christ's pure bread." Better still, coax the wild beast to become my tomb and leave no part of my person behind. Once I've fallen asleep, I do not wish to be a burden to anyone. Notice the difference between these two men. Socrates is saying, well, I'm going to die. You're going to live. Who's got the better lot? Who knows? Ignatius is saying, well, I know who has the better deal here. It's me. And so don't try to stop me from being executed. Because this is my ticket home. This is my pathway to union, to perfect union with my Lord. And that kind of boldness in the face of death was, of course, grounded in nothing other than his own masters conquering the grave. But the benefits of the incarnation extend beyond just freedom from fear of death. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. We have profound consolation in these closing verses of chapter 2, but to... Understand them rightly, we need to back up a little. One of the burdens of the apostle Paul was to preach and teach that rules cannot save us. Right? And I was reading a passage from a book called The Logic of God by Rabbi Zacharias just a couple weeks ago. And he points out that Christianity is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. And you're not going to do that with a system of ethics. You're not going to do that with a code of morality. So far, so good, right? But one of the major problems in the Christian church is people are very good at taking true teaching and then drawing a totally wrong conclusion. And here is a prime example of what I'm talking about. As soon as you tell people the rules don't save you, there are going to be people who say, Ah, wonderful. Then to the devil with the rules. I will live as I want to. I will be a law unto myself. I will indulge every sinful appetite I have up to the hilt. And heaven everlasting is going to be my reward. Right. Now, I want to be careful here, because I'm not talking about people who are caught in the grip of some vice or addiction, right? So let's take someone who's addicted to pornography. That's a real problem in the church nowadays. But it's someone who knows they're addicted and they hate it and they want to be freed of it, right? We're not talking about people in that situation. That person is on the road to recovery, I would say. That might be a long road he has to travel, but at least he's taken the first step. I'm talking about Christians who believe, and there are many of them in my experience, that repentance has nothing to do with salvation. Now, what does the author of Hebrews have to say about this doctrine? Well, let's look in chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, how we live matters. How we live matters. And no one who knows God and walks with God is going to spit in his face and trample his grace underfoot. And what people need to understand is there is no contradiction here between what the author of Hebrews is writing and what the Apostle Paul taught. The Apostle Paul said, we are in bondage to sin, we need to be free, and a rule is not going to do the trick. That's correct. Because if I have a heart that gravitates towards selfishness and evil and falsity, just slapping a rule down, don't be selfish, is not going to change my heart. Now, I might obey that rule if I'm disciplined, but I'm not going to want to. And that's the problem. The problem is we need to be forgiven by God, we need to be accepted by God, and we need to be transformed by God, to turn from our dead works to the living God. And what we want is a faithful high priest who knows how to sanctify His people, and that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here in these last two verses. That's the kind of high priest Jesus is. The kind that we're told about in the book of Malachi, chapter 2. Let me read Malachi, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi... They stand. Levi is the father of the priestly class, right? They trace their ancestry through Aaron all the way back to Levi. says the Lord of hosts, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. So in other words, these words here in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 are for people who responded to the call to take up their cross and follow Christ. Those are the people who actually need this kind of comfort. I have a son who's in preschool and at his preschool they give him homework, which means I get homework. And sometimes he'll be sitting there in the kitchen, he's sitting there at the island doing his homework and he will just break out into tears because he's so frustrated. He'll be sitting there crying saying, Daddy, I can't do this. Now, what does a good parent do in that situation? Now, I, admittedly, I don't always do what a good parent should do. But I know what a good parent should do in that situation, right? You go over to the child, you console him, you give him comfort, and then you help him get through the work. What you don't do is say, well, if doing homework makes you upset, just give up. Like, problem solved. You know, and that's, that's the kind of consolation people sometimes want in the church, Right? You're on the narrow path that leads to life. You're carrying your cross. It gets hard. You won't say, Daddy, I can't do this. And you've got an enemy at your elbow saying, well, just put down the cross and give up. There's a broad path that's smooth, that slopes downhill ever so gently. And why don't you just take that way instead? Don't fight the good fight. Don't finish the race. But that does not that's not going to console someone who wants to be like Jesus. And that's the point of these verses, that we have a merciful high priest who can help us because he doesn't despise our weaknesses. He sympathizes with them. He knows what we're going through because he himself was tempted, because he himself suffered, and so he knows how to bring us through that and sanctify us. The one who sanctifies and the ones who are being sanctified all have the same father, right? It's a family affair. That God is taking care of His own. Even when they want to give up. Even when they have lost hope. They can put their trust in their merciful high priest. And all of this, of course, is connected to the baby. Wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The reason that we have this hope, the reason that we have this consolation, is because... God entered into human history, He entered into temptation, He entered into suffering. And now He knows how to bring us through and bring many sons and daughters to glory. Let's pray. Holy Father in Heaven, we thank You for the opportunity we have to congregate together and to worship Your name. We pray for our church here. We pray for the city of Ridgecrest. We pray for the world at large that your seed will find good soil and take root and yield a crop of righteousness for your name's sake and for your glory. And we just pray that we would put our trust in you that you would give us the grace to fight the good fight and finish the race. In your righteous name we pray. Amen.